Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Hopeful Majority. I'm your host, Manu Meal. Remember, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, we drop weekly episodes. Today, our guest is Dr. Seth Kaplan, who's an expert in fragile states. There's a lot of fragility happening in the world, unfortunately, and also a lot of weakness and instability. And he's actually got a book out on the United States called Fragile Neighborhoods. And the question of today's show is, why are we so lonely? Because the answer to that question might reveal a little bit to the broader topic of how to strengthen general society. This is a fascinating conversation. We go a lot of different places. I think you'll really appreciate it. And as always, to the regular listeners, leave a review on Spotify, Apple, like, and subscribe on YouTube. If you're new, welcome to the show. I'm going to do a quick, 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 quick monologue, and then we're going to get right into the conversation with Dr. Seth Kaplan. Let's cue the intro. Let's get into the monologue. Why are we so lonely? This year, the U.S. Surgeon General, I don't know if you know this, has put out a report that declares loneliness as the national epidemic. Not heart disease, not cancer, not drugs. Out of all the different things that the Surgeon General could declare as one of the United States' top health priority, he's made it loneliness. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, Manu, loneliness? Why that? Well, I think the conversation with Dr. Seth Kaplan is going to get a little bit into it, but the experience that comes to my mind, and actually when this recording comes out, I'll actually be in India. And one of the experiences that comes to my mind was about two, three years ago when I was visiting India, I was visiting a village. And I don't mean one of those villages that are like nice and wealthy outside of like the state of New York. What I mean is a mud hut village where there's lack of water, there's extreme poverty, where there's societal instability. And I was driving through that village, and what was so interesting was while people seemed mater- materially poor, they oddly seemed pretty happy. There was a lot of social connection. There was a lot of bonding. There's a lot of relationships. And actually, the guest that I'm going to have on next helps us explore this phenomenon where I saw a society that was materially poor and yet socially rich. There was a lot of social capital there. There was institutions. There was connection. There was an understanding. There was neighbors I think about this where I live right now. I live in San Francisco, probably in one of the wealthiest parts of the world, the city of San Francisco. And in this city, I can probably count on my hands how many times I've actually had a conversation with my neighbor. I can tell you the skyrocketing mental health crises that are existent in this society. And again, it raises this weird dichotomy where in San Francisco, we're materially wealthy, generally speaking, not everybody within it, but the society, the city that is San Francisco, and yet socially poor. It speaks to my experience. We see general increases in drug overdoses across the country. You go to a region like Appalachia, you go to a region like the suburbs of Chicago, you go to Harlem and New York City, and then you go to our suburbs and you go to rural communities. And there seems to be this general fraying of our civic fabric. There seems to be that while economic growth, technological advances are happening, we as people are being left behind. It almost feels like we as people are not evolving the way our technology is evolving. I almost think of this as, imagine us in a zoo, and the zoo's getting all the upgrades, and yet the thing within the zoo has not changed at all for thousands of years. And it raises many questions, like, is our society set up to actually build and operate a world in which we as humans thrive? Are schools set up to engender relationships? Is the impending AI revolution and the revolution in social media, has that shattered our relationships or strengthened our relationships? I often think about this irony where the Surgeon General has declared loneliness as a national epidemic, and yet we live at one of the probably the most connected times in human history. You can reach anybody across the globe with a click of a button. Isn't that fascinating? Because it, it, it forces you to think about the question, well, why are we so lonely? You know, does the collapse in relationships in society, uh, some might declare that to a lack of religion. Some might say that there's a lack of civic association. Some might say that there's economic stagnation. There's a lot of analyses for it, but the fact is that there seems to be rising crises across the board. And what's so interesting about my next guest is that he makes a fundamental claim that at the core of human society that we often forget are people. In this very technologically advanced world, we forget that politics, the first part of politics is poll. Poll means people. People are the key. And we've forgotten that the investment and necessity to take care of people is essential. 
And I don't mean taking care of people economically. I mean us building a safety net for our relationships, for our community. How many times have we all heard the phrase that healthy relationships lead to healthy lives, and yet we're seeing that decline? And so I'm incredibly excited for this conversation because I think it gets at one of the most under-talked about aspects and problems in our society, not just mental health crises, but loneliness and how our society is designed to actually continue to facilitate a loneliness structure. How can we actually align our economic incentives to societal incentives? How do we manage all those dilemmas? Well, Dr. Seth Kaplan, who's got a new book out called Fragile Neighborhoods, tackles exactly this problem. And I think you're going to find this conversation fascinating because of all of the presidential candidates I've talked to and the policymakers and the intellectuals and amazing young people and you name it, there's always an emphasis on policy. And yet Dr. Kaplan has an emphasis on people. So let's get into that and understand why he's so concerned about the loneliness crisis in our society and how we can fix that. Here's a conversation with Dr. Seth Kaplan. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Seth Kaplan, welcome to the Hopeful Majority, sir. Great, grateful to be here. Thank you so much, Manu. No, I appreciate you coming on. And just before this, as we were, we were getting on, we haven't had a chance to talk too much, but we've been like, I guess, LinkedIn friends. And we've saw each other <laughs> in, <laughs> at George Mason University at the Mercatus Center. Um, and I found out that we both have not a mutual love for New Jersey, but a but a mutual admiration <laughs> for that. We state. might have a mutual love of Bruce Springsteen. Okay, I'm, there you I, go. I think we probably have a mutual admiration for the diversity and uh, the green, the green parts, and some of the the great times we had growing up in New Jersey. I'm not sure we both like the highways. Probably we, too many highways. We, we, too many highways <laughs> in New Jersey. And and I have to say, as a kid that lived in New Jersey, and then I moved off to Boston. Only after you leave New Jersey and you lose your yourself on awareness, right, and you regain some degree of self awareness, people just you realize how hated that state is across the world. And it's so it's kind of funny. I just think it's a it's a running joke without any any understanding because New Jersey's doing pretty well actually. Well speaking of of fragile states, <laughs> New Jersey definitely in, in some ways is one and in other ways is a beautiful one. So let's let's get right into it. You know, I normally uh like to ask questions about your background and your understanding, but given all that you do could you maybe take a moment and and just for the audience, maybe give some context as to who you are and and I'll give you I'll, I'll then prelude into the book. But who are you, Dr. Kaplan? And and importantly, uh, what brings you to this conversation today? I um, if you walk around Washington D.C. and I live right outside of Washington, and you ask people who is Seth Kaplan, uh, up until now, I think this book changes the conversation, but up till now, they will know me as the fragile states person. Hmm. I have worked on, let's say, about 35 different countries. I lived in six or seven countries, depends how you define how long. I've done homestays in over 30 places, and I've visited about 75 countries. And for the last wow. uh, 15 plus years since my uh, first book came out, Fixing Fragile States, 2008, I have basically been uh, co-managing a nonprofit and uh, working for the World Bank, USAID, all these other organizations on fragile states. And I'll just connect it to why we're talking is yep. that most people, when they work on fragile states, states that basically are prone to become unstable. Yeah. And I was about to ask war. you, what is what is a fragile state? Well, so I'm going to explain how I define it differently. And that leads into why I wrote this book. Okay. Most people, they look at a country and they see what's wrong. The ministries don't work. The economy don't work. There's violence. Therefore, it's fragile. Hmm. For me, and this is based upon years of working in lots of countries, the single most important factor for the success of a country is the nature of the relationships. The relationships between parts of society, between people, between government and people, lots of different ways to frame that question. But I always start on what is the nature of the relationships in the society, not some technical understanding. I want to know the social dynamics, the social institutions. Are they bringing people together? Are they driving people apart? And other factors and mm. so when people ask me 2015, 2016, is the U.S. fragile? And of course, that was because of the election and some of the politics. My first reaction was, no, it's not like Nigeria. I just came back from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. It's not like Sri Lanka. I just came back from Sri Lanka. But something is amiss. We shouldn't see politics as 
just producing politics. We should see that there's something in society and relationships Hmm. and possibly the breakdown of relationships in some form that affects politics downstream. And so when I went to answer this question, my, my starting point was what has changed in our relationships that would lead so, to a change in our politics. I have to say that is that is such a, a a New York way of coming at a problem, which is like, how are the people doing? <laughs> how, how are the people doing? And and is that New York? I haven't thought of it that way. Hey, well, y'all. It's Times right. Square. You go through yeah. Times Square, and you got a million people, so you got to look at the people first. That's and, maybe that's it. And you know what's fascinating is when you break apart the word politics, poll and ticks. Poll is people. Right. Yes. And it's and it's a fundamental assessment of people. And I want to ask you actually taking a step back. um, We live at this moment that's highly technologically advanced, where the emphasis on the human and the person decreases as we start to have a broader sort of ecosystem approach. Why do you think it is important to recenter a focus on people? Because to me, that seems obvious. In a democracy, the basic unit is a person. Uh, Why do you think that has happened? Because to me, I think you are absolutely right. When you look at a society, you look at a family and you ask, well, how fragile is this family? You ask, well, how are the people within that family? Why do you think that has changed when it comes to nation states? Well, I think you're asking why is this changed in terms of our conversations, our yep. news, our um, the focus of social, political, economic leaders. I think clearly the more the more the more technology drives change. Um, the more people will focus because it's something new, it's something novel. But I also think it's something how we're being trained to think. Hmm. When I go and I go and look at a neighborhood or a society or a country, I always want to start with the building blocks of success. What are, what are the what are the what are the foundational elements like? And for me, those things, in this case, relationships, or it could be social dynamics, or it could be something to do with institutions. How is that affecting everything else? But we're mostly trained. And if we pay attention to the news and what's going on in our society and how we think about it, it's driven by professionalization. It's mm. driven by specialization. It's driven by a focus on, again, to technology, new things. We don't teach people to think in a holistic, integrated way anymore. Mm. I mean, that might have been, if you go back and think of the, the, the most famous authors from the 18th, 19th, early 20th century, they were thinking very broadly about what was going on in a country. Today, everyone is very siloed. So I think it's something to do with technology. I think it's something to do with professionalization, specialization. No one is in charge of the basic issues that make everything else work or not work. Well, you know, when when Alexei de Tocqueville came to the United States and he observed American democracy, one of the things he talked about was not only the emphasis on local political and voluntary associations, but an emphasis on this vibrancy within people to do something. He, yes. he described the yes. American man as somebody that is constant. Yes. Right? And and I guess my question to you then would be that as you look at his analysis of the United States in, in the 18th century and the 19th century, and you look at the United States today, what do you think has changed within people? So first, um, he's got this great quote. The Tocqueville is a great quote about the the study of society or country is the study of associational life or something like that. Don't quote me. It's got some great quote like that. And so he was and, and, and when he came to America, what's interesting about his own journey, he had studied France and he was coming to America to understand is why did the French Revolution fail and why did the American Revolution succeed? And he actually has. He has several books that he wrote or things that he wrote, but his two most prominent is one on the French Revolution and one is on the American Revolution. And he's contrasting. And what's interesting is he's arguing that because something in our society, in our relationships, that we are practicing democracy in our neighborhoods, in our local communities, by mm-hmm. the way we are engaged with each other. And that really goes to the heart of, of my of how, what book. I'm talking yeah. about, about my book. And my larger arguments about how we need to think about these problems, we can't look at the endpoints and try to find an answer. We need to go back and see what has changed more broadly. And what he is saying is American democracy thrives because the society on a daily basis is practicing democracy. It's practicing democracy because it's 
people working with each other. It's people forming associations. If there's a problem, he's got another great quote. Again, don't quote me on this, the exact wording. But if there's a problem in the society, people get together and they form an association to address the problem. And you got association for manufacturers, associations for this, associations for that. And I think what we see is dramatic change in America from the 60s till now is the complete decline of this local social associational life or the local association. I mean, you, you have it in Putnam's yeah. Bowling Alone. Bowling alone. Yep. Yeah, Bowling Alone. But he's looking at it very much on the level of the individual. And my argument, we need to look at the level of the relationships and the institutions that support them. Okay. So we've we've mentioned this so-called book many times. And so I think it's about time that I actually named the book. And so the book that you're, you're writing is called Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society One Zip Good at a Time. We've set the prelude for the book. We talk about what is a fragile state. We talk about your background, the emphasis on relationships and people. But you described yourself in the opening as somebody that has traveled to, what, over 75 countries. You've visited a lot of different places. Why the sudden focus on the United States? Um, and is there something that you found abroad that you feel like you can apply domestically? And then we'll get a little bit more into the book. But I'm curious why the focus in the United States? Well, I, I have, you have you have that question and the question of what we can learn from fragile states. So first, I wrote the book because so many people ask me, when you write a book, you, you better have a lot of motivation because it's, uh -huh. it's uh, years and years of work. And when people, I mean, four, five, six, seven people over and over again were asking me in that time period, 2015, 2017, is America a fragile state? And again, I had just come back from overseas and I, and I could not think of us as fragile in the way of the countries that I understand it. Mm. But, I, but clearly something was wrong because when politics goes in a bad way and the country becomes very polarized, you have to ask yourself, what has changed in society that has made that come about? So first of all, I wrote the book to answer all these questions. Yeah. I also wrote the book because I I looked at when I when you write something, you have to again you have to have a lot of energy and emotion to really carry How long you did through. It take? How long did I mean it take you could think of about a five year project wow. to write a book. I wow. started I started the start of the book literally is I formed a group on social capital in Washington with some think tank people and other people I knew like Ann Schneider. Ann Schneider and I worked very closely on the social capital group. We did it for several years. We brought people together. When COVID happened, we went virtual and went national and brought people from around the country. And basically that was trying to help us figure out what was wrong in our relationship. So that journey helped me decide that the, I should focus on the local, on the place. And I, But I also think a lot of people are worried about polarization. There's hundreds of organizations. I mean, you and I met at the Mercatus uh, mm -hmm. conference. Um, I went to the Brave Angels conference. Yeah. I meet a lot of people worried about this topic, but I, all I see them thinking downstream, what can we do downstream about our electoral system, about dialogue, mm -hmm. about things like that. And I really don't see many people connecting what is going on in our politics to what is going on upstream in our relationships. So the motivation to write the book was, I didn't think, that people were um, focusing on what I thought was, it's not the only issue, but clearly it must be a, an issue. And by the way, we have five or six other big social problems getting worse at the same time our polarization is getting worse. No one is connecting the not dots. No mm -hmm. one's making a larger argument and no one is providing solutions. Everyone is talking about the problem. I desperately want to do something that helps promote well, solutions. I guess you are now. And, 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 and I guess the, the important thing I would ask you is when you say relationships, what do you mean by that? Do you mean relationship between individuals? Because you said that um, someone like Bob Putnam is, is very focused on the individual. Do you mean relationships at the community and neighborhood level? Could you get a little bit specific? On what yes, you yes. Okay. When I look at relationships in a country, think I, I'm unusual when I go and want to learn about a country. I mean, of course, I read the history. Sure. Um, I read novels. I do a lot of things that somebody else that would just be coming to the country wouldn't do. I wander around a lot. I go into people's homes. I uh -huh. go into restaurants. You know, you go everywhere and you watch a lot of people. You, what you're always trying to do, and then you study the society in many forms. You're trying to find is what is the key element in the social relationships around the society that is that is not working. So it almost sounds a, like a it almost sounds like a glorified fly on the wall. 
um, of a, yes. a honest society where you're genuinely trying to understand. Sorry, keep going, but it's, yeah, it's a I fascinating. Mean, you want to be a hundred flies on the wall because you yeah. want to be in different parts of the country, not just the capital. Many people go to a country they never get past the capital. You want to see different parts of the country. You want to see the physical part of the country. You want to see how government is working for different parts of society. So when I'm in fragile states, what you typically see is locally, community is strong. But when you get above community, the relationships don't work because these are post-colonial states. They didn't have an organic history with the developed national institutions. They were opposed upon them. So the problem with relationships is between parts of society. In America- oh, interesting. Okay. So that's that way. But when you come to America, we have these great nonprofits. We have a constitution that's 200 plus years old. We have companies. We have technology. We have so many things actually going right in our country. But what has changed in the last two generations that are affecting how people feel and how they behave and what they spend their time doing? And for me, that is why in America, in the case of the United States, I know there's the left and right, and we worry about that polarization. But what I most worry about is how people on a daily basis are experiencing life with the people that they're, are they spending time with other people? Are they working with other people? Are they compromising with other people? It's hard to imagine uh, if you lived in the 50s or 60s, not that we're going back, we only can go forward. And today, how much people spent with each other and in organizations and institutions, and they played leadership roles. And today we have none of that. So what you have for a lot of Americans, and I think this directly impacts politics, is you have a lot of people that are alone, that are disconnected. Mm -hmm. They feel that they have no power. It used to be they were engaged with their local neighborhood or their community, and they could actually contribute and do something, and they felt a stake in society because they had a stake in their neighborhood or their community. Today, people feel they have a stake in nothing, and everything is being done to them, and they're just, they feel like a victim, or they did feel you, alienated. Did you see the the Surgeon General's uh, yes. national report declaring yes. loneliness as an epidemic yes. in the United States? So, so if I got very specific then, when you talk about in the context of America, when you say relationships, you mean between individuals. and you. Mean I mean between individuals, yes, right, between right. individuals. So we're talking household, yep. family, we're talking yep. street, we're talking neighborhood. I realize that if you're very materially well off, your yep. life is much more than a place. But for most Americans, where they live has enormous impacts. If you're poor, it's even more true. If you're a child, it's even more true. We are very much affected by where we live. So help me out with this next question. So I was I was just thinking, um, I want to ask how you see a difference in the level of relationships in society. And there's a couple of different variables I can think of. One is geography. Like, do you live in the north? Do you live in the south? Do you live east, west, midwest? Another variable I can think of is, is do you live in urban areas or do you live, live in suburbs or rural communities? Another variable I can think of that you mentioned is, is your income level. Does relationships matter by income? I can think of occupation. Out of the mix that you can see here, what have you seen are the, are the key indicators or variables that you look at in your book that help you think about relationships? So first, just think in the United States, you're average lifespan can vary by as much as 40 years based upon where you live 40 years i think it's 41 actually um and a more typical example would be i spoke to some um an organization outside of kansas city recently and they're talking about two neighboring counties and there's a 20-year gap one is the mid 60s wow. one is the mid 80s wait let's just hold on that for a second 40 years and then between two a 40 year between neighbor neighbor talk about neighborhood so yeah so and, I, the, the, the more typical is a 20-year gap still that's we have, huge and we have an extreme it's a, it's huge and why is that gap so huge well it's something about there could be insecurity um there could be access to opportunity uh there could be some sort of marginalization but for me the key element is the strength of the of the society, the strength of the relationships. You can be, you could be, there are a lot of poor people who are socially disadvantaged, just a lot of social inequality in our country, but you could be poor and in a socially rich neighborhood, and you could mm. be rich and be socially poor because you're isolated, alone, you have very little support system. But when I talk about this difference in 
lifespan, it's something to do with family structure, something to do with social capital, social networks. It's something to do with, there's an economic component, access to opportunity. There's something to do with the green environment. Uh, there's something to do with, with uh, I mean, there's factors like this, that, that when we talk about social capital, the ability of people in the neighborhood to help each other. There's a fascinating study from a heat wave in Chicago in 1995, hmm. two neighborhoods, equally poor. One had very few deaths, one had a lot of deaths. And the, someone did a social autopsy, basically try to analyze the difference. The difference was in the relationships. One had more, one had much stronger connectivity and one was much more isolating, hmm. probably because there was no retail, probably because there was no institutions, Probably because people just didn't, had norms, didn't look on a, uh, on each other. So you could have an enormous difference just in three-day mm -hmm. heat wave in terms That's of people dying or staying alive, just about how much. So, so I think you have to look at that and magnify it over and over again every single day in terms of just the love. People need love. People need care. Mm -hmm. People need help. And, and if there's none of it, how does that, how does that affect people? And I know people listening right now can relate to that. I mean, you think about that story of a heat wave in Chicago and two different communities having two different death rates or injury rates because of their relationship. So then the natural question, Dr. Kaplan, becomes how do you actually measure the strength of a relationship? Well, again, the way to do it is on the collective, like okay. on a place-based element, or it could be a group-based. I mean, this is one of the challenges. We have a, we have a relatively easy uh, measurements of economic growth or the economic situation, we don't have the easiest. But you can e you could do it with a survey. There's different different ways to measure. I mean, you could look for some. And proxies. what what are you measuring for? You can look for proxies. You can look for yeah. proxies to actually measure social capital. There's uh the easiest ways to measure something called collective efficacy, and okay. which you basically at the neighborhood level you have a, a variety of tests you run and you come up with some collective efficacy. At the, and people have done that at the neighborhood mm. level. I'm just curious, like, what would a test involve? Like, I, you go into a neighborhood, and let's say that, you know, you are being a, a thousand flies in the wall, and you're trying to measure the collective efficacy of. I mean, of you you measure networks. Okay. You measure their networks. Okay. Um, you can measure the household. You yep. measure transiency rates. Places with high transiency have, have much mm. less um, social capital because people come and go, so that yep. there's less trust. Uh, you measure the the level, the number of institutions. I mean, this is stuff you could do. Things like a church, so things like church. Stores, I mean, it depends, yeah. depends to how your scope, but you can measure uh, 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 retail shops. You mm. could measure nonprofits. You can measure churches. Okay. Uh, you can measure anything about. So you can measure institutions. You can measure. You can evaluate networks. You can you can even do surveys of how people are behaving. And so there's a lot of ways to do this. It's just not something you typically can take off right. the shelf. Some of this data is off the shelf. Some of it is not. You could also family structure, a place with lots of strong families mm. will have stronger social capital because they're more stable and they tend to have stronger interfamily networks. Now, I, I know one of the things that you said was we obviously don't have an interest in politics and I have zero interest in politics. It's the reason for this hopeful majority is the nuanced <laughs> conversations, but I can already hear people thinking if, you know, let's say they're more on one side of the political aisle, they say, Dr. Kaplan said family structure, strong family structure as well. We got to have better family policies. Or I can hear, you know, somebody on the other side saying, uh, well, does he mean that, you know, certain families are more effective, certain, certain families are less effective rather than getting involved in all of that. Yes, here's let's question, avoid here's, that. Here's the question I have for you because it goes to this point of nuance. You mentioned this phrase, which I find so fascinating. It describes, I think, so many people's lived experience that you can be socially rich and materially poor. Yes. Or you can be materially rich and socially poor. Yes. That is like the definition of the neighborhood I live in in San Francisco. We probably live in a part where there's a lot of wealthy folks, there's a lot of tech people. And I can count on my hands how many times I've actually had a conversation with my neighbor in the last seven months. Why do you think that is? And I know that's a very broad question, and it probably varies by location. But I think that's a good way to maybe articulate some of the trend lines that you're seeing in your book. Yes, yes. So first, I live in a, a neighbor with an abundance of institutions. I would call it joyful. Where do you I live? On the street. I live in so, a place of Silver Spring right okay. outside of yep, Washington. Maryland, yeah. 
a very specific neighborhood. We have three restaurants, a supermarket, a pharmacy. We have a center. We have an identity. We have when there's a problem, we, WhatsApp groups form right away. When COVID happened, people put benches in front of their in the front lawns. Um, and so, I mean, I walk down the street and I know who's behind the doors. I know how many kids they have. I might know where they go to school. I have a need. My wife last week had to drive to New York to help her get her mother out of the hospital. And I needed help with my kids four times, two morning, mm. two afternoons. I had four different neighbors help me with my kids, getting them back and forth to school. Uh, because when you're in a neighbor with an abundance of institutions, there's a lot of things in life we can do with an app. There's a lot of things in life we can't do with an app. So I think the key thing we should understand in America has gone from a socially well-off country to us. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mixed, depends where you live, but we're much socially poorer than we yeah. were two generations ago. That's good for some people. There's less conformity. There's maybe more opportunity for some people. And so we don't want to go back, but a lot of people are being left behind because our society is like built on networks mm -hmm. and so in my, if you don't have place-based networks, place-based networks are things that everyone can participate in. Right. If you have other networks, you could be excluding a lot of people. So uh, 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 I think people should all be in a joyful neighborhood like my neighborhood. So you have that abundance of institution. You have an abundance of societal health. Yes. Social connection. Yes. I, I, can, I can hear people resonating with that. And I can also hear and people- And it's a left and right issue. I mean, you mentioned some oh, yeah. things about family. I would it, say family issues- tend to be a little more on the right, but I'm really talking about family household stability in terms of, and having enough love and support for a child. Yeah. You could no, you know what, what you're, what, what so you're we're talking about? We're talking about these issues resonate on both sides. I mean, the both, you're talking about human nature. You're talking yes, about human nature. nature. We I'm, don't thrive without relationships. Americans, so many Americans are suffering to be very honest. Yes. Because they don't have relationships that are supporting them, they feel alone. They feel, why are they mistrustful? Why are they alienated? Because they're out there mm -hmm. in the wilderness all by themselves. It's not surprising actually. So I can I can already, I'm itching to ask you, what are some solutions, right? And I can hear the audience saying that, but I wanna spend a little bit more time on the problem because there's, there's two dimensions of this that I'm particularly interested in exploring. The first dimension is when you now talk about these materially poor neighborhoods, um, the question becomes, why is it that a neighborhood like Silver Spring, right, retained its three restaurants and its pharmacy, and it doesn't have, you know, McDonald's replacing that restaurant, whereas maybe, you know, a, a, a suburb closer to Washington, D.C., right below you, or, or an external suburb of D.C., is totally different. What do you think explains the radical differences between two neighborhoods that are right yeah, next to yeah. each other? I think there's, in America, because of the, the changes in our economy, the changes in people's ambition, so mm -hmm. many things, the changes in the physical landscape. Think, I mean, I have foreign eyes from traveling around the world. Mm -hmm. There's no country in the world that spends so much energy to make beautiful highways and, and, and spend so little energy making beautiful places. It's one mm -hmm. of the most incredible things about America is so much on the highways and that there's so many place neighborhoods people live in there's no way to bring people together and they're actually not very beautiful. Go to an Italian city or a French city or a Japanese city and there's so much about the places that matter. So answer to your question, I found, um, I think it's four different types of neighborhoods that continue to thrive. You have, yeah. you have a neighborhood that's, I would say, very educated uh, with a lot of law. Think of Chevy Chase near Washington. Think of Park Slope in, in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Tends to be very progressive. Lots of social institutions, lots of social activity going on. It's a thriving neighborhood uh, with lots of things going on. It happens to have. So that's one category. Very educated, mm -hmm. very high level of social engagement, tends to be more progressive. Another would be a place that's religious. Okay. could be a neighborhood where the religion builds community and brings people together. I've seen that. I've seen places that are. There might be some culture that has continued from the past, might be a town, it might be a part of the country. If you look at statistics on social capital, the upper Midwest tends mm. to consistently have very high statistics. If you know people from those towns, 
they tend to have more of a place-based civic sense of civic responsibility. So I would say that's a third category. And the fourth category I've seen is places that are simply a little isolated. Okay. So my neighborhood has a combination of a few of those elements, but it happens to have a very defined identity with the stores mm -hmm. in the center and some associations. And there's also some religious connection. There's a few of those elements at the same time. And so I've, I've met someone from Connecticut who went there for a year uh, to live, was teaching at NYU, went for a year, had no intention to stay, but that place was somehow cut off because there was a lake and then everybody mm -hmm. just came together and had such rich relationships because they were like on a, a little bit like on an island. Imagine being mm -hmm. on an island and that builds, that can build, it doesn't always build cohesion. So I found those four different types of neighborhoods or places that still has thriving relationships. So you've got highly educated, religious, culturally strong in neighborhoods that are, that might be. I would say the physical, isolated. more physical. And I think I think yeah. I think all four teach us something about how we can so, improve places. Now, I, I want you to help me explore tension that I that I can sense, and the tension is one between change and and what might some people might call globalization of progress, yes. and sustaining the strength of a neighborhood. And the reason why I asked that question is you said you know, some neighborhoods are, are are relatively isolated. They maintain their identity. And I can immediately hear, again, the politics of it, which is somebody yes. saying, well, don't let the demographics change, right? Or I could hear, you know, somebody that, let's say, believes in a more populist economic agenda, don't let the McDonald's into the town. It's going to ruin the place. How do you navigate the tension between change and yes. stability and strength of neighborhood? That's a, it's a great question, Manu. So, um, I think when we look at the health of a society, we always need to understand that countries need to navigate between competing objectives hmm. and those objectives sometimes are intention. So the tension of complete individualism versus complete communitarianism, there's if you went too far in each direction, there's downsides. So you're looking for something in the middle where the individual is free and can move. And, but if you get to, I think at this point in time, America has become extremely individualistic and it, therefore it has some negative impact on individual and social well-being. So, in, so the same way that I just explained, I think we want, I mean, I'm, I read the Wall Street Journal. I'm a big believer in the market. I'm a big believer we definitely want to keep trying to become wealthier and economic dynamism is very important, especially with our competition with China right now and other countries. And our economic dynamism is essential for the future well-being of the United States and and and, I, and knowing that there's a lot of poor people for, for, for those pockets as well. Mm -hmm. But I would say the economy works best the same way politics works best when you have a strong society. Yeah, uh, we in our country today, in our economy, we're losing tens and tens of millions of people who are not actively participating in our economy, and in our and in our politics, or our civic engagement, because they feel alienated, they're left behind. They might be in a distressed neighborhood where the whole neighborhood is doing badly. They might be, it could be in a in an urban neighborhood, could be in eastern Kentucky. The thing is, we have 330 million people, and mm. one of the best ways to ensure that our country remains economically dynamic is to get as many, obviously there's the young and the old, but get as many of those 330 million people deeply engaged economically, socially, politically in our country. And I feel the way we've, the way we've designed things yeah. on many levels, we're leaving so many people behind they're not contributing. So I'm all for that. And clearly a dynamic neighborhood, my neighborhood is very dynamic, but we must have a dynamic neighborhood to have five, six, 7% turnover every year. And that would be normal. If you had 25% turnover, the neighborhood is doing very badly. You could be, you, I mean, it, it's not, yeah. those aren't always correlated because you're going to be in a wealthy neighborhood. Nobody leaves and nobody talks to each other, but the poor neighborhoods tend to have very high turnover and that is one of the reasons why they're not successful. Hmm. Is there a way, and I was having this conversation with Andrew Yang, uh, which is, and he talks a lot about things like UBI and, and potentially even incorporating things like motherhood into the GDP. And one of the things that you're isolating here very clearly is a tension between 
economic objectives and societal health, is there a way to potentially align economic incentives with societal stability and societal richness? I mean, again, it's it's uh, it's a challenge that that a lot of people have thought about more than I have. I think first we need to understand that uh, a flourishing national flourishing depends upon not only economics. So I would I would say thinking about everything in terms of incentives. I wouldn't necessarily do that. If you go back and study Madison and the founders, they were clearly worried about virtue, for example, and and what kind of citizens they would have and how that would affect politics. And I think it's the same in other ways. And virtue is is not, for me, it's not something you necessarily just teach. It's something that people learn by doing things with other people. So I would say some of these foundational elements for a strong, for a healthy politics and a healthy economy are things that are not necessarily things that are economic. And we need to think of these as pre-political mm. and that we need to build a society to, in, to make those as easy or as celebrated as possible. However, I will just give you a few suggestions if you want economic suggestions. Sure. For example, we give money. A lot of people give money and I and I'm I'm all for philanthropy, but I would say philanthropy that helps people and places near you um, is in some ways could be more personal. It could involve volunteering. It could involve. Some Are you saying that of, all of us shouldn't be donating billions of dollars to a presidential campaign every year? No, I'm. I'm, I'm saying that we should. <laughs> if you want an incentive, what would happen yeah. if we had an incentive for uh, giving close to home? Yeah, for local yeah. associations. I mean, I mean, we don't have an incentive from incentive for mother. It is a great idea. An incentive for volunteering is a great idea. These things are not easy to incentivize, but mm -hmm. I think if everything becomes a transaction. Yes. What ends up happening is we don't have relationships. We don't have institutions in society. We don't have trust. And mm -hmm. we mostly um, are against each other because that's what transactions are. I win, yeah. you lose. So uh, I can imagine a younger person listening to this conversation. I get a lot of critique for this myself where they're like, Manu, you're just an old person. And you're saying we should develop <laughs> the relationships. And, you know, I've got my friends on online gaming and I've got my relationships. And yes, I might not know my neighbor, but my friend in China, apparently <laughs> I'm very close friends with <laughs> because I play a video game with them. Um, it's, it's hard for me to not feel a little, not necessarily pessimistic, but feel almost like there's an inevitable outcome here where we're also fusing technology more and more with humans and and refusing and marching towards a world of AI where the concept of a local neighborhood almost seems like a relic of the past. What is your counter argument to that? Well, I would just say, um, look at look at what this, I mean, a lot of people believe in your argument and look at the outcomes. The outcomes are over a hundred thousand Americans are dying every year from deaths of from from drug overdose, mm -hmm. and and that that is um, partly related to the decline of connection. You have more and more polarization. You have more and more depression. You have about a quarter of the population taking drugs for depression. You have more and more um, mental illness. You have uh, you have these enormous social problems all rising in parallel. And, and so my argument is everything you say looks great, but what is it doing to people when they're, when uh, is it, how's that working yeah. for you? Yeah. Because we've been saying that for decades and I'm a big fan of progress. I totally believe in progress, but how is that doing? It's, it's, mm. it's, we are making the technology progress, but look at what's happening in society. So my argument is, how could we build a society to enable that progress to continue at the same rate or even faster because you might have more people able to participate and at the same time build a society that would strengthen relationships, encourage strong local engagement. Mm. Um, I mean, to some degree, re-institutionalize social life because we've had a great deinstitutionalization, and you and I might thrive in this world where all you have to do is be in the right network and have the right job and we can figure things out. But I think that's a very narrow reading about how a lot of people experience life. Yeah. And I think well, a lot of people need more than that and they're not getting it in this, in this paradigm. 
My mom certainly doesn't think I have the right job, but that's that's a conversation for another day. Um, you <laughs> Your know, I'm in New Jersey. Yeah, well, she's in Boston now. But oh, Boston, I, you moved, of course. It's actually interesting. I I am actually headed to India on Friday, and you uh, mentioned that. What part of India? Northern Northern India, New Delhi. Gujarat, uh, Gujarat. You're going to uh, uh, well, UK, Rajasthan. That yes. near sort of the Pakistani border. Have you been to India? Yes. I've been to uh, those places. Yes, I've oh. been to one of my favorite places in India is Amritsar. If you have, yeah, been. yes, I do. It's in Punjab. Um, yes, it's right near Karachi. I went from there across the border. Really? I walked across the border. It's worth Man. doing some time. Good, good for you. That just so everybody has an understanding, the India-Pakistan border is the second most heavily militarized border after the South Korean North Korean border, and so you walking across is a. Is a, is a is 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 some is some serious high high speed stuff. You know, I I'll tell you, uh, Dr. Kaplan, as I was listening to this conversation, I always think about what should the monologue be, and the 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 notion that stuck in my head, and then we'll go a little bit to solutions. But this is a little bit of a, a segue slash tangent. I was I remember the last time I was in India, uh, and I went to one of the local villages that you know some of my family grew up in and where I grew up for a little bit of time. And I don't mean villages like you know the village outside of New York City. I, I mean like you know what I'm talking. I'm talking. About mud I've been hunting. in some of those villages. Exactly. They're fascinating and, and little water, materially poor. And yet, yes. man, I have to tell you, some of the happiest people I've met in my life are in so those true. neighborhoods. So and, true. And and it's such. I think it would be so confounding for a Westerner to try and square that because I live in San Francisco here, and the mental health crisis is insane. And yet, yes. I go to a village in India. They don't have that. <laughs> they don't have mental health. I crisis. I, I think you know? we so don't understand what the decay or decline or the thinning of our relationships yeah has meant for all these problems. And I always hear about. I published a piece in the Hill on this. We're looking for a national strategy on loneliness and we have a national strategy on the drug epidemic and we have a national strategy and that's all wonderful. But what about going upstream and trying to prevent the problems by doing something in terms of how we design the country so people had were more likely we can never guarantee it. And again, it's a dynamic, very developed country. We're not going back. But what could we do so that people had better relationships oh. were more connected? So let's actually go there. We have some government people that listen to this podcast. Let's say that we give Dr. Kaplan the magic wand and you talk about designing a society or country in a way in which you're maximizing societal and human health while balancing things like economic prerogatives that you say are also very important. What does that look like? So it's a, it's a few levels. And I think it's not only something that government I mean, I think uh, churches, nonprofits, businesses, a lot of different actors can contribute. But I would say a good starting point is to ensure that everybody lives in an actual neighborhood. Most Americans, because of the way we've built out our landscape, they live in houses, on streets, and there's no neighborhoods. There's no place to meet each other. There's no center. There's mm -hmm. no institution. So let's think of this problem as a physical and an institutional if we were to physically design the country so everybody lived in a place with clear boundaries, a clear center, some unique features, clear parks, uh, community school. We don't even think of the importance of school to incubating relationships, community oriented churches. We don't realize how much religion in America is consumer oriented and not community oriented as it used to be. Imagine that churches were place-based. Imagine that schools were place-based. Imagine that government was structured not around departments, but around places. So people weren't, the departments weren't being evaluated on the number of housing units or patients they saw. They would be, we would still have those, but we would have place-based teams and there'd be indicators on how healthy or successful a place was doing. And, government would be evaluated on how well those places were doing instead of how well those departments were doing. So imagine if government was structured differently and every part of government had a, had was structured around each of these neighborhoods instead of them all being structured around different places with no connection with neighborhood teams. Imagine the physical landscape. Imagine the churches. Imagine the schools. Imagine those neighborhoods all had a center with at least some small businesses, some places to meet. Imagine they all had parks. Imagine they all had some sort of community um, um, offerings that people could right. engage with, small businesses. This exists 
in many parts of the country, but we don't think of it intentionally that we need to design things like this for everywhere. And I think if everywhere was designed like this and we focused on social as well as economic flourishing place by place by place, I think our outcomes would be tremendously different. And there's a lot there, and I let folks evaluate the the ideas and their own merits. But one it's thing very I difficult, would, of course. Don't I understand how difficult it is where we are today? No, but but one thing I would say though is the the emphasis you have on developing things and building things in that actually goes to one of the other thinkers, Ezra Klein. One of the things he talks about is, and he's working on, is what it means to have and build a liberalism that builds. How do you create a society that's focused on building? Yes. And there's an interesting thing and in parallel there where you can actually focus a lot on building that strengthens community. So that yes. that touches on institutions. Now, one of the other things yes. you do with the books is you actually detail individuals, local institutions, nonprofits. Is there a particular story that you profile that you find particularly uplifting that you think is a good model for people to hear? So first... I believe that our big problems can only be solved by place by place working on small problems. And I think the idea that we rebuild the social fabric through policy or some sort of national initiative, I think that's, 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 there's some things that are important, but I think the most important thing is we roll up our sleeves. We make a commitment to our places or the places near us and that we work with each other. And if we work with each other, we will develop relationships. So I'm going to give you an example of that. There's a gentleman named Chris Lambert. He has an organization called Life Remodeled in Detroit. Now, Detroit is um, an incredibly, um, I would say, interesting, but also very depressing landscape. If you've been in post-conflict zones like me and you go to Detroit, it reminds you of a post-conflict zone because you have whole neighborhoods who have disappeared. You have houses falling down. You have, it's a, it's a city that's lost two thirds of its population. And here's Chris Lambert in Life Remodeled. And he's doing wonderful work, trying to beautify neighborhoods, trying to repair some of the houses, the roofs, the boilers that have fallen apart. He's trying to clean up neighborhoods. And he's doing this for many years and he's building relationships and he's building trust. And then one day he gets this opportunity to do something much more ambitious in one neighborhood, a neighborhood that is, kind of in the middle, some progress, still parts of it going down, parts of it going up. This neighborhood hub could make a big difference for that whole neighborhood. And the, the Department of Education locally says you can take over this middle school and turn it to a hub. And he thinks this wow. is a great idea. And he thinks it will take millions of dollars, got to renovate the building, got to find the organizations. And he thinks this will be great. People in the neighborhood will love it. And so he comes and he announces it, that he has done this. And Lo and behold, the neighborhood is very angry at him. Hmm. The neighborhood is, what are you doing? And, and, and there was anger, and he holds a couple of community meetings, and people are screaming at him, calling him names. And it, it takes him a while, and he's got a very good friend, a guy named Duan, who helps okay. him figure this out. And the key thing is, first of all, uh, he's a white guy. Hmm. He's coming from the suburbs or from out of state originally. This is a black neighborhood. And their immediate reaction based on their history and based on what other mistrust. people had to come in. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's some mistrust, but also this idea that they're going to gentrify and push the people out. Right. This is not for them, whatever the language being used. There's a lot of past experience about misuse of language. So that's one thing. Second of all, you have to understand what is trust. Hmm. This is very important. How do we build trust? He going around doing things for people was not building trust. If I walk to your house, Manu, and say, I'm going to give you a new, new air conditioner. I'm going to clean up your yard. Are you going to be happy? Yes, you'll be happy. Are we building trust with that? Not really. So he had to develop a very different relationship with people in the neighborhood for them to trust him. And that meant going around and actually spending a lot of time with people, going mm -hmm. street by street. It meant breaking bread with people. It meant a lot of small group engagements. It meant identifying leaders in the neighborhood, people who other people trusted, sort of like a bridge. 
Yeah. They don't trust me, but they trust these leaders and gradually working to identify them and bringing them together and eventually creating two advisory boards, one of the leaders, one of students, because a lot of things are for students. It also meant he had to change actually who his organization was. I mean, it wasn't, they had originally didn't have people from the neighborhood working for them when they began right, to hire people from it. the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't just integrating. I mean, they had people from outside. I mean, because this guy, Dwan, who was giving him his advice, was also black. And they mm -hmm. called him names, too. It wasn't only a black-white thing. It was an outsider-insider thing. So they had to hire people that were not only black, but people that people knew and trusted. And so he had a, a, there's more than this. But that just gives yeah. you an idea that building trust is very hard. It takes a lot of time. It's labor-intensive. And it's also about not doing things for people too much in our society. When people have a need, we do things for them. What really, what we need is that people need to work together. We build trust by cooperating, rolling up our sleeves. And I mean, building, you mentioned this idea that we have to build and liberalism needs building. Trust is about building together. It's not right. about talking with each other. We trust each other because we're not talking politics. We're talking about how many screws do we need? What mm -hmm. color paint do we need? How do we renovate this roof? Whatever it is, that is bringing, and you do that many, many times with people, they're going to trust each other. And there's no politics and trust. Trust is about doing things with each other and building relationships. It's just about work. Building it's about it's, work. Yeah. It's about building institutions. This could be formal. It could be informal. And his, his organization becomes an institutional anchor. And then he brings in 39 institutions and they have lots of spin-offs institutions and they mm -hmm. are some sort of informal institutions in the neighborhood. So lots of things go on and he becomes like an incubator of institutions. So the same way we need to build physically, we need to build institutions place by place that place. And that is work. And that is about doing things together with each other. And what's fascinating about Chris's story is it, it speaks to the fact that everyday people can actually build institutions. Like when you hear the word everyday people, yes. Uh, like like you, when somebody tells me the word institution, I think of some giant building in Washington D.C. And really, what you're talking about is building a local community hub or a relationship or a middle school or a park. It's it's actually within us. And I think vision yes. for, for for the future that empower people to do stuff makes a lot of sense. There's one last thing I want you to touch on because I know we're we're nearing time, but. I was I was having a conversation with both Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running on the Republican side, and I was running uh, having a conversation with Marianne Williamson, who's running for president on the Democratic side. And they both, uh, and obviously it makes sense, they both are running for president, so they've got to have policy prescriptions. But they both had policy prescriptions. You know, the progressive case is often put more money in people's pockets, give universal health care, it'll make people happier more, more, more astute, you know, somebody like Vivek would say, make families stronger, reduce levels of immigration, preserve identity. And yet something that you touched on is this is something that can't just be fixed by policy, that this is a community focused vision. Why do you think it is so hard to make that case today? Because when you go out there on the debate stage, you're having a conversation, you say, hey, it's not just policy question. It is about you as people rolling up your sleeves, having conversations, building a house together. That's what actually makes a difference. How do you make that case? Or what would your advice be to somebody running for president right now that could take on what you're talking about? I, I would say that uh, I, I, I would never say policy doesn't matter, but I don't think it's the most important thing. I think the most important thing, if I'm a leader of a, if I'm running for office or I'm thinking as a political or government official, Mm. What is the, what is it that can be done? I think we think very narrowly about government. We tend to always think of these policies and legislation, legislation or regulations, and that all matters. But I think that in a country as developed and as advanced as the United States, what government does, which is most important, is how it structures society. And what I mean by structures, it's something about the physical landscape. It's something about how it how it designs society in terms of organizing it around, I mean, uh, around neighborhoods or no neighborhoods or right. how it allows multifunctional um, uh, zoning versus single functioning zoning or how schools, sure. if schools are place-based versus schools are, and I'm all for competition in schools, 
But when schools are place-based, neighborhood-based, and kids walk to school, likely the kids will have deeper relationships and likely the parents will have deeper relationships. That's a structural choice. That's not a, that's not, I mean, it's related to policy, but we never think about how what government does affects relationships within society. And when we critique government for building a highway through a neighborhood, often a poor neighborhood, I mean, that's devastating. But the why it's devastating is because government did something that wrecked relationships and wrecked social dynamics. But government does a lot of things that could help or hurt our society. And a lot of them is about how they change structures within government or within society. And I would ask them to think of this as the most important role of government in a country like the United States, more than policy. Policy can help, but for the most part, we're about 95% policy out, and we're not going to dramatically change policy. But the structures that we've created have made our country much more socially fragile than other developed countries. And uh, they're also wealthy. They don't have our social problems. Why is that? It's something about... Something about the structures we've created in our society, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about, you know, something like building a highway through a poor neighborhood. I could already hear a policymaker saying, well, look at the price, that look at the, the benefit of that highway. It's going to create $10 billion, you know, in economic growth. And I'm sure they'll just justify it. And to your point, that's a very technocratic lens. And, and folks can debate whether or not that's the case. But the one thing that I think people have a hard time debating right now is that we are fundamentally lonely. And I think a lot of people feel that. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it. I want to ask you one last question. It's a question I ask everybody, celebrities, politicians, intellectuals, whatever you classify yourself as. um, And that is the question, why? Why do you do what you do? And why is it so important to you? I would say uh, early on in my life, I understood how important relationships were. I had, um, so I'll give you a personal story. And that will that will parse that will partially answer this question. When I grew up um, in New York and then New Jersey, back to New Jersey again, I had this uh, problem speaking my first language. I was I, I would talk, and my mother could not understand me. And that was four. It took me to I was like after five that she could begin to understand me. I wasn't articulating well. Then I stuttered, hmm. and then I got bullied a lot, and I had a really awful experience in seventh grade. And then I'd literally changed schools in eighth grade. And it took me many, many years to gradually learn. And what it was, was I had to sort of study the nature of relationships and the nature of norms and how the groups that I was involved with in school operated. And I had to be more intentional about what it was about. And somehow this lens about sitting outside and looking at society stood with me. So I think there's a deep... And then for my whole life, think about it. When I had choices, I did wander around the world um, and I had choices what to make, but it was always the countries with the warmest relationships that attracted me. I work on fragile states, uh, partly because the people there are so wonderful. They're warm, they're, um, they take care of you. You feel like you have a deep relationship with them. And there's a type of interdependency that you don't have in, a, in the United States. You're never lonely in these places. And so I I think there's something about my upbringing and my experiences that over time simply made me obsessed by the nature of society. And so it's a lens I carry with me. And But I also say I do this work because I look around and it's somewhat baffling to me why so few other people actually are concerned with how social dynamics affect policy, social dynamics affect uh, nonprofit or philanthropy initiatives, social dynamics affect violence, social na- uh, dynamics affect uh, the, ch- the risk of a country falling into war. Um, places I work always have that problem. People don't think in this way. Uh, so it's, I would say it's partly my experience and it's partly that I've seen over and over again, there's a huge gap. This is something that I can contribute to. And I think it's important and so rarely do people understand that simply how we are embedded in relationships and institutions affects us in so many ways in networks and things like that and affects our individual well-being it affects our local neighborhood well-being it affects our society well-being 
And until I see somebody else making this message um, better with actually solutions, I don't see a reason to uh, drop the ball here or put the ball down at this point in time. Well, fragile neighborhoods repairing uh, American society one zip code at a time. Uh, don't drop the ball. I don't know if you're a Jets fan, but uh, definitely don't drop the ball. <laughs> New um, York Mets. Doc Sorry, we've dropped the ball enough times in my lifetime. I know. Dr. Seth Kaplan, thank you for joining the Hopeful Majority. Thank you for having me, Manu. Thank you so much to Dr. Seth Kaplan for joining us. I hope you found that conversation particularly insightful. I have to say that we talked a lot about loneliness. We talked about civic fabric fraying. And the reason why I actually do this podcast, why I love this conversation, is because it gives me the chance to actually talk to real people in an unedited hour-long format and build those relationships. And it is so incredibly fulfilling. And I'm so grateful to you for helping us build this platform. We need you. We're building this hopeful majority because we're trying to fight outrage, build nuance, create a space where we're not talking about politics, but we're talking about people. We're showing nuance in the world. Every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, leave a like and subscribe on YouTube. Leave a review on Apple and Spotify. We're building this together. We need the support. And I'll see you next week on another episode of The Hopeful Majority.